This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. The American dream, a popular phrase that we're all familiar with. What does it mean and how is it defined? And who has access to the pursuit of that dream? These are questions that Marcus and I plan to address some in some way on today's show. We'll be in conversation with Mr. Matt Bacote Jr., a name that is familiar to many here in our local community. It is sure to be a conversation that will be interesting and informative. Again, Marcus and I want to thank you all for taking the time to join us again on the Waters and Harvey Show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm glad to be here, seated again, you know, in my home office, and my brother is in his home office. We're not in the studio, but uh, Marcus, how are you doing? And welcome to our audience. Yeah, I'm I'm doing well. You know, I've spent, I've been spending more time in my home office than um than I ever thought that I would spend um in in the span of what five or six months. So um, right. <laughs> things have been interesting. Yeah, it it has, <laughs> and and you have been telling me a little bit here at the opening of the show. You know, we know that so many of uh, the members of our audience are kind of going through the same thing that we are going through. We're we're coming to everyone via Zoom. Um, I hear a lot about Zoom fatigue. I think about the fact that you are teaching classes right now, Marcus, and you're doing that all online. So many colleges and universities across the country are doing this, but um, you've actually found it uh, quite uh, enjoyable and engaging. Yeah, by, by and large, I know I've said in, on previous shows uh, that the Zoom format was growing on me as far as a teaching tool, and that that is still the case for the most part. Um, however, I like the term that you use, Zoom fatigue, because there is a part of me that is uh, steadily growing tired of talking to boxes, because basically when, <laughs> when you're addressing students, uh, you see them in um, in boxes. Uh, and so, when, you know, when one student talks, they're box pops up or or yellow border will appear and um so that in combination with just you know spending so much time in front of a screen is 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 taking its toll um, but, but one has to do what one has to do. So. Right. right. <laughs> but I think that we're all getting to see the value of human contact. And I'm yeah. sure that everyone will be yeah. looking forward to getting back together soon. So, I guess I'll just let our secret out, Marcus. You and I have, you know, we're COVID free, but we, we're taking all of the precautions that we need to partake. Uh, we need to take, but we have gotten together from time to time. And I got to tell you, I was tempted today to say, OK, we're going to do the show. Let me just go out and hang out with Marcus. We'll, He'll, he can sit on one side of the table. I'll sit on the other side. <laughs> I think that would have made for um, a show of shows. Yeah, <laughs> well, we're glad to be back. And, you know, Marcus, as I was thinking about this particular show, you know, we started it out talking about the American dream. I have been wanting to have this conversation that we're going to have with Mr. Matt McCote Jr. for a while. Um, he's someone who is a real fixture, and we'll be introducing him into the conversation in a few moments. But it made me think about the purpose of of our show and the reason mm-hmm. why we started this uh, back in 2014 some of our listeners may not know but we you know we started this out on a low powered radio station here in Asheville and then had the opportunity to move over here to the Blue Ridge Public Radio format which has been uh, both both experiences have been good we have actually recorded um, if we combine all of these shows together well over a hundred shows mm-hmm. but the purpose why we started this was really to try to not only 
take come off of the ivory tower off the come out of the ivory tower off of the hill and engage the community talking about that town gown um that relationship we had that conversation not too long mm -hmm. ago with with chancellor nancy cable and the mayor of the city but we also you know um wanted to really give I guess more prominent voice to marginalized, historically marginalized voices. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many stories that I find that people are not familiar with, but thinking about this show and what the reason why we wanted to do it, I couldn't help but think about the purpose for why we started the show. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that one of the, um, when I think about this show, I think about one of the purposes of, of higher education, especially in the, in the liberal arts tradition. And that purpose has to do with not only honing students' ability to think critically, but also with producing um, whole persons uh, who are also um, civically engaged, civically responsible, and able to bring their critical education to bear on the life of the broader society, again, mm -hmm. in a way that, that, that is civil, civil, but also provocative and challenging in a constructive way. Right. And, and I think in many ways, I, um, our show was conceived as a way to model that, right? Because I, I think, I think um, much of what we do, um, really, as far as the essence of the show is concerned, um, involves really civic engagement, critical mm -hmm. civic engagement modeling what that looks like, modeling what it means to ask difficult, uncomfortable questions, right. um, and then uh, dive into those questions, sometimes just in the context of you and I reflecting, and other times um, in the presence of guests. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, you know, using, using that, um, that mission um, as a way of, of, as you put it, connecting to marginalized communities, right. connecting to marginalized stories, and then bringing those stories into this, 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 um, this ongoing conversation that we've mm -hmm. been having. Because mm -hmm. I find, Marcus, I'm surprised uh, sometimes when I'm in conversation with others mm -hmm. of how little we know about each other. And, and I, I will confess, as a historian, um, is a part of my work, really, to, to kind of know those backstories. But so often in this fast-paced society that we live in, I find it interesting that we know so little about each other. And this gave us the opportunity and the feedback to, to kind of tell those stories. And the feedback that we've gotten from our uh, from our listeners has been has let us know that there there's a great value to what it is that we we've been doing these past few years. You know, Marcus, not only have we tried to do this through the show, but people have been asking me lately. You know, especially in the middle of COVID, the work that we've done. You know, in hosting uh, each year this this conference on African Americans in West North Carolina and Southern Appalachia, which we're going to do online. It will be Zoom again on October 16th. But it has been a way for people to kind of engage stories that they didn't know. And I think that maybe it's playing some role in uh, some of the, you know, the challenges that we're seeing to these larger narratives of American history mm -hmm. at this moment in, in, in our uh, society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to sort of seeing how that, uh, how the, this particular conference slash symposium will pan out. Right. Given, yeah. given the challenges posed by COVID. But but if, if previous if previous conferences are any barometer, brother, um, I, I, I have no doubt <laughs> that, that the level of engagement will will, will equal 
um, if not surpass that of, of prior conferences. So right. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this thing shakes out. Yeah, me too. And it's been interesting to tell these stories, but I want to also take the time here in the opening of this conversation to think about the last show. Um, a lot of mm-hmm. feedback on the last show with uh, both Meredith Doster and Jojo Legister. And I mean, I thought it was just uh, such an engaging conversation that we had. One of the things that Jojo brought up in the course of that conversation and that the two of you just discussed brilliantly, especially in the context of the work that you all do at looking mm-hmm. at the continent, at Africa itself and in indigenous traditions there, especially religious traditions among African peoples, was this idea of the elders. Um, Um, And the role that elders play in society. And and in many ways, we're going to be speaking with one today. And Marcus, I just think it is incumbent upon us, especially as as a younger generation and those even before us. This is something that I try to impart to my son all the time, that there's so much wisdom that you gain from listening to the stories of those who've gone on before us. Yeah. And, you know, just to reference um, an Akan proverb that um, I mentioned last show, that proverb being that the mouth of an elder is more potent than a charm. Uh, something else that, that that proverb brings to mind for me is really the role that elders play as, as pillars, pillars of society. They really are pillars of society that, that help, that serve as a kind of um, bulwark for their living, for their um, surviving descendants, and for the broader society, against the various vicissitudes that um, society will face um, mm-hmm. as as history unfolds. Uh, why are they pillars? Kind of going to your point, they're pillars because they really serve as reservoirs of knowledge and wisdom that the society needs mm-hmm. to help navigate. Um, the challenges of, of, of really of, of social existence, navigate the sort of unpredictability of, of, of history. And um, to sort of connect to a point that Dr. Legister made last show, um, we also rely heavily upon elders, uh, both in living form and ancestral form, mm-hmm. uh, to really sort of hold human communities accountable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to morality, with respect to ethics, uh, with respect to raising questions around uh, whether or not individuals and communities are living up to the moral expectations of society, living up to the moral and ethical traditions that have been established over long periods of time within societies. Um, and so the, the significance and just the sheer power uh, that resides in the, the, the figure of the elder mm-hmm. is difficult to overstate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure you can overstate it. And I would also add, just, just by way of wrapping this, this point up, that I, I think without, without the guidance of elders, society does not progress. You're right. You're right. And, right. And, 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 and I think that the moment, the moment that a society ceases paying attention to and listening to the wisdom of elders is the moment that society begins to decline precipitously, right, right. in my and opinion. I, and I think that the point that you're making is such a uh, an important point, and I hope that those who are listening are really listening to that particular point. I think it's something that we here in the Western world, in American society, and in so much of my research, well, most all of my research focuses on the West, um, mm-hmm. America, Europe, uh, South America, that what I have found so enjoyable and enriching about our friendship and our 
conversations is that getting the perspective that you and then Jojo brought to the table, you know, looking at what other people groups were doing, how they look at this, the role that the elders play, I think is instructive for us here in the West. And it's something that we need uh, to re-engage. You know, Marcus, I have, uh, I have, but those of who, who have heard me give a talks uh, before, and I probably have done it here in this format on the show, I, I often reference um, uh, Edmund Burke, you know, the, when he was the 18th century uh, political thinker from Europe, uh, from England, who once said that the world belongs to the living, the dead, and those yet to come, that there's a great historical continuity that we participate in. But while I've been quoting Burke, it has been enriching to have the conversations with you and hear that this mm. is really a tradition that has been followed more globally than we like to think here in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I, I think... Um, it's important to recognize that, that that different cultures have different ways of relating to the past. And I think, unfortunately, in African traditions, because of the sort of colonial presupposition that, you know, African peoples have no history to speak of. Right. Um, the role of, of the elders in in maintaining a uh, uh, not only just a connection, but but a vivifying um, instructive connection to the past was largely just ignored. Right and, and right. rendered invisible. So I think it's important, uh, you know, to to lift those those traditions, those those non-Western, those African, those marginalized traditions are relating to the past up, especially especially in this moment. Right. Uh, and so we want and so you and I really in this show, we want to do that with the guests that we have today. Mm-hmm. And we, we open this up talking about the American dream. We hear so much mm-hmm. about that, Marcus. It's, it's one of those phrases that is so popular here in this country. But I am curious about, you know, how is that defined and who is doing the defining? You know, do mm-hmm. we determine that ourselves? Then I'm also because of the purpose of our show. We're also interested in those who no matter how that that is defined, who have been not who have not been allowed to really actively participate in the pursuit of whatever that American dream is, whether it's being mm-hmm. defined by some larger society or whether we are defining it for ourselves as individuals. But one of the people, the, the person who is our guest today, Mr. Matthew Bacote Jr., um, has been someone who has really been on the front lines with uh, trying to ensure our working and successfully, I would argue, mm-hmm. working to ensure that the American dream or the pursuit of it, even if it's an individual pursuit, whatever it is, is open up to more people. And so he is 90 years old, which is amazing, but has a very, very vivid and fresh mind, a deep memory, which I am, as a historian, I'm absolutely impressed with and just hoping uh, that I will be able to have the same type of memory <laughs> if should I make it to uh, to 90 years old. So we're looking forward to having Mr. Picotto on the show. But before we get into that conversation, Marcus and I again want to remind you all that this is the Waters and Harvey show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. And again, we we are looking at issues surrounding the American dream. How is it defined? Who's defining it? And who has access to it? So Marcus and I are pleased to introduce into the conversation Mr. Matthew Bacote Jr., who is a businessman and an activist and has been an activist here in the Asheville local community. I would not just say Asheville, but I think that his influence goes beyond Asheville and even into the region of Western North Carolina. It has been wonderful to get to know him. He knows so much more about 
about my, my even my own family than I do. But Marcus and I want to take the time, Mr. Bacote, to welcome you to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Yes, welcome, Mr. Bacote, and thank you. Thank you also very much for inviting me, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed the discussion between the two of you over the past five minutes. Extremely <laughs> informative to me. Well, great. Thank you all. Well, the conversations that I have had with you prior to uh, our doing this show together have been very informative and instructive for me. And I think, Marcus, I, I could tell from our kind of conversation before we started uh, the show today that this was going to be a particularly engaging one. But if we can, I would like to just begin here because you are a native of Asheville. And I mean, there's so many places in this conversation where we could start. But I would like, if you don't mind, to just start with the fact that you are a native of Asheville and you have seen a lot of change over the course of your life. You have been right in the middle of a lot of that change as well. How would you um, how would you define or, uh, or just describe how Asheville has changed in the course of your lifetime? Thank you so very much for asking that question and to be very candid with you, gentlemen. There is so much to be told. <laughs> uh, there is so much that has transpired in this community and beyond that uh, many, some people are aware of and many people I'm sure are not aware of. So what I would like to do is start with this. Uh, today, we, uh, every day, we are bombarded with politics, of varied incidents across the country when it comes to police and Negro people, others as well. And uh, of course, if we've got the time as we go through this, I will denote that Negro for you all that I use at all times. However, Asheville, born here, born on Buchanan Street. Buchanan is near Marcomsville, um, the ballpark. At that time, Negroes didn't live on Buchanan. But my father and mother, when they moved in, my father from Darlington, South Carolina, my mother from Rock Hill, married oh. Shelby, and then moved into Asheville, North Carolina, 19, 1926. Um, my father was the type of person who's come from the farm town of Darlington, South Carolina, hardworking people. Uh, he would find a way when there was no way. So he was the one who was able to get an apartment on Buchanan Street, which was all white. Uh, I was born on Buchanan Street. I'll move from that to uh, Lantern Street, where my brother and sister, Robert and Barbara, uh, were born. But moving along, Asheville has been a part of my family and me in particular. Asheville is in our blood, meaning that my father was a janitor for many buildings downtown. And also, he was an entrepreneur. He owned a cafe, Quick Service Cafe on Eagle Street. Also, a cafe and ice cream parlor on Blanton Street. Story that I think that much of your audience would love to hear about, and that is the 47 Negro businesses and professional people that were on Eagle Street between Biltmore Avenue and Spruce Street. Mm. Those are two very short blocks. But just think about it 47 Negro owned businesses and professional offices in that small block. Also, that of the seven restaurants that was between Biltmore Avenue and Market Street, 
each one of those entrepreneurs, based on my knowledge and what I learned, and this is something that back in the day, as they say, on Sundays after church, uh, my parents would take the three of us to the cafe on Eagle Street. On Sundays in the afternoons is when the Negro business persons met, and it wasn't a chamber of commerce, but they got together and they talked about their business and business needs. Uh, at that time, there were $2,700 in a loan, a group loan pool. Uh, and on Sundays, the business persons would come, they would uh, borrow $25, $50, or $100. They would tell when it's going to be paid back. There was never anything other than a handshake and my mother writing it down on a law. Mm. It's my understanding, based on my mother and father telling the story, that they never lost one dime. Now, you're talking about enterprising. We had what was called an enterprising Negro business community. Of course, now it goes beyond Eagle and Market, but the most significant part is just 47 businesses in that area. Now, what I'd like to do is touch base on something that is uh, in our minds and on TV all day. We talk about police brutality. We talk and, and what's happening in uh, and, and the various cities across the country. Asheville, North Carolina has been a city that's kind of been a medium receptive to racial differences. However, we've had our racial problems here. So I would like to give you this. 1947, Weldon Ware, who's the city manager, insisted that we have a Negro police officer who was Delaney Hohen. Mr. Hohen was the physical ed teacher at Stevens Lee. He was taken out of the school and placed onto the police department as a policeman because of his education. The Negro had to have an education, wherein is my understanding, as I learned, in later years, many of the white police officers, some of them didn't have a high school education, but the Negro had to have a college education. Mr. Horn was put on the block as a police officer with some minor training, uh, with no a weapon, but only a bit of stick and a pair of handcuffs and no vehicle. His, his beat was the block only. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not to arrest any white people, and eventually some come down Delmore Avenue and venture onto Eagle Street. Which that happened, uh, people would be a little uh, filled up with their spirits, and they wander into the Eagle Street area. However, Mr. Horn did not allow that to deter him. If the one ventured in the area, he arrested them if necessary and walked into the police station. Now we moved Mr. Horn to Gilbert Sly, Lee Williams. Uh, they came in the second year, 1947 to 1949. They were hired. At that time, they finally decided to give Negro police officers a pistol. And of course, they feel a stick and their handcuffs. Going on calls, when, a, when you call the police station, going on calls, um, be taken at the police station, which was uh, where it is now. And uh, the white police officer would drive to the block, pick up the Negro officer, then they would go on the call into a Negro area. Uh, that's the way it happened. So we moved from that period down through the years, and we had approximately 14 different Negro uh, police officers, including two females. And we end up to just the, almost the current day, but our first Negro lieutenant in law enforcement was Willie Allen, 
at the Buckham County Sheriff's Department. It wasn't until um, 20, almost 20 years later before we, we in the Asheville area was able to look around and see we had a Negro lieutenant in the Asheville Police Department. Now there were a number of sergeants, one, two, three, four sergeants down through the years. Then we end up three years ago with a police chief, Negro police chief. So we can see there was a progression down through the years, but look how long it took mm-hmm. for us to get to the point where we were at the top of the ladder with a Negro police officer. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing this up because that is a part of our history here. Mm-hmm. That is a part of what Asheville has provided. Okay, And one other area I'd like to mention real fast, and that is politics. Uh, Mr. Forrest Hardy, who is the owner of the York Cab, 1948, filed for... Um, city council seat. The information went out. His cap stand was located on the corner of Eagle and Market, uh, Eagle and Biltmore Avenues. There were three gentlemen at the, shortly after he uh, filed for city council. They ventured onto Eagle Street and ordered his cab and to go to Mountain Street. Mr. Hardy drove the gentleman to Mountain Street. When they got there, they forced him to take them to Boquetcha Mountain, which is just up the hill from Mountain Street. Once they were in that area, they took Mr. Forrest Hardy out of his cab and I'll say not flogged him, but they beat him with sticks that they pulled from the growth where they were. Of course, needless to say, Mr. Hardy withdrew. The story I know because he told it directly to me, not only me, but others who went into the Eagle Street area on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to Dr. Hendricks, who filed for the city council in 1951. I was unsuccessful. And we did not have a Negro city council until 1968. And that was brought about mainly because of pressure by new industries moving into Ashland and Buncombe County, inquiring what's chamber, city and county talk to these prospective business owners about Asheville, the business owners would want to know, tell me about the political climate here. Mm -hmm. And each time our representatives, the chamber, city and county were embarrassed because we had no real political input as far as the Negro is concerned. Mm -hmm. So in 1968, uh, uh, attorney Reuben Daly ran, and I put together a group, and we forced Dr. John P. Hope to run for city council at the same time. Now, you can imagine what we we're doing. We were abutting what the power structure wanted. They wanted Attorney Ruin Daly. The two gentlemen ran, and in the first primary, uh, Dr. Hope received 3,231 votes. Attorney Daly received... 3,233 votes. That calls for a fraud. Um, We discussed that, and in the dead of night, someone from the power structure sent someone to talk to Dr. Holt and ask him to withdraw and do not run for the second primary. And of course, you can imagine what that did to me and some others of the group that put together. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, Mr. 
Attorney Ruben Daly was on city council, unfortunate, um, sort of a premature death. And we didn't have another Negro on city council until 1976. 1976, I ran, I lost by three votes. Uh, there were others that ran at the same time. Dr. Otis Michael, who was a Republican, he ran at the same time. And of course, he was elected. So that gave us our first Negro on city council uh, in 1976. Okay. Uh, I'm mentioning this story because <laughs> if you look at it today, well, from that point coming up to today, uh, it's always been like, we must have one, must have one, what? One Negro representative mm. on city council. We move up to today, if we take a look, we've got two elected Negroes on city council and one appointed. Mm-hmm. We've got an appointed and an elected county commissioner. We have today a Negro county manager and a Negro city manager, assistant city manager, Negro. Um, this is how far we have come. And today it seems like things have opened up in a way wherein there is some additional progress can be made. But it's going to require us, all of us working together. And when I say all of us working together, I'm talking about we, the Negro, African-American, of the Black people of Ashland and Buncombe County, coming together in a more cohesive way, in an honest and respectful way, and put together whatever is needed to move forward, even beyond where we are at this point. Right, right. Uh, there's so much more of that. But I'm going to pause there and let okay. you say, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, well, Mr. McCarthy, I mean, it sounds like so much has transpired in the city, let's say between the end of the 19th century going up through the 1970s. And I'm, my guess would be that some of these changes probably were connected to or perhaps even reflected changes that were taking place on the state level and probably the national level as well. But um, I'm but but I'm interested, Mr. Bacot, um, because because we know that you were very and you you've sort of begun to touch on this. We know that you were very active as a change agent um, during this part of Asheville's history. Um, so could you could you spend could you spend a little bit more time talking about about that specifically, and then also um, and then also. Uh, who 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 you partnered with? Who you worked with um, in these in these efforts toward change locally in Asheville? Okay, gentlemen, here we go. Let's go for this ride. Um, <laughs> back in the early early fifties, um, we had very little activity, meaning that um, we had baseball and we had the very parks where kids played. And, uh, there was some basketball in the very parks, but as far as um, sort of a control recreation, bowling. I'm gonna take bowling because that has brought us a long way. Uh, the Negroes had no place to bowl in Asheville, North Carolina. Mr. Norman Poor uh, purchased three bowling um, lanes from Asheville Bowling Center located on Merriman Avenue. He moved those into the broom factory, which is located on Choctaw and McDowell. He set up the three bowling lanes and that's the Negro bowling activity that we had. Later, he moved them into the Owl Lounge on Southside Avenue. Uh, he only moved two lanes into that area. That was the only bowling activity we had. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Jesse Gibson, star Stephen Lee football player, who was the manager of the Colored Employment Office located on Market Street. Uh, I was working for the Chamber of Commerce, a job that I took 1956 part-time 
from 9 o'clock until 1 o'clock, five days a week as a mail clerk, $12.50 a week. I had applied at Oteen Hospital, also America Eka, and Southern Railroad. Nothing came through of that except uh, at Oteen Hospital, I received a letter that's still in my files today. We do not hire Negroes in the position that you are asking our chose to go into. So here I am at the chamber part-time. Then another part-time job uh, shortly after that, both distributing plant on Patton Avenue. So working the two part-time jobs, and Jesse Gibson comes to the Chamber of Commerce at City Hall. He says, Matt, I need for you to do me a favor. There's a new bowling center, this 1959, on Kenilworth Road, and they need a custodian from 12 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning. I need you to go out and talk to them. I said, Jesse, I've got two part-time jobs. To move that forward, I went out. It was October 1959. I was hired. I planned to stay on the job from October until December after Christmas and then leave. But by the time that that uh, December came, I had the job was down to a science. Uh, the bowling center stayed open seven days a week, uh, five days a week, I'm sorry, five days a week and all night. I'm the custodian. I'm the job. I performed it in a way where it only took three and a half hours. The rest of the time I read. I'm working three jobs. At the bowling center, I became the night manager. Unheard of during that time. Then assistant manager. I go to the owner of the bowling center, Sam Irvin, and I said, Mr. Irvin, you're closed on Sundays. Give me an opportunity to bring Negroes out here and bowl. He said, well, that can't happen because we've got a mortgage, we have other expenses we've got to uh, uh, pay, and we just couldn't take that chance. Eventually, after three months, he yielded and allowed me to bring Negroes out. So I immediately um, went to Eagle Street, talked to Mrs. Car Mrs. Carlette, all the business people, to let them know that they could come out to the bowling center on Sunday night. We would teach them. I had acquired the help of three Negroes who worked at the Asheville Bowling Center. They knew how to bowl and to help me on Sunday night um, for approximately eight months on Sunday nights, the bowling center, 24 lanes were full of Negroes bowling. I was instructed to never allow a white person to bowl with Negroes. However, being Matthew Bacote, I don't follow those types of instructions in particular when I see an opportunity to make something happen. So some white mm -hmm. people did come. I allowed them to bowl. Three months later, the owner called me in about it. And we talked about it. He said, okay, Matthew, it looks like you're trying to integrate the bowling center. And I said to him, I don't see anything wrong with it. We set up a process where and we used uh, two gentlemen. One of the gentlemen, uh, Robert Lackey, a local cab driver, uh, excuse me, and James Branch. Both of these people, persons lived at uh, New Yorker Heights. Mm -hmm. They helped. They wanted to help me train the Negroes during the Sunday night bowling. So when the owner and I was talking about the, the uh, integrating, we set up a process wherein I would use people that I know to come out on Monday afternoon and bowl two lines and leave. That was Robert Lackey, 
and uh, James Thompson, Ms. Ada Thompson's grandson, uh, the two of those. We did it again on Wednesday night, again on Friday night. The next week we did the same thing. There was no problem whatsoever. And Sam Irvin and the manager, Don Starrin, said on uh, one evening when I there at the bowling center, said, Matthew, what you've done, you've integrated the bowling center. That's the first public accommodation that was integrated in Ashland Bunker County, 1960. Okay, so Mr. Picot, Mr. Picot, what I'm hearing is that, you know, there was kind of a step-by-step process that you all used here. And it sounds like you had a number of people who were collaborating together. And, you know, Marcus, what is striking to me about what Mr. Picot is, as he's kind of narrating these stories, which I think is so important for us to hear. And Mr. Picot, I I would love to get to, to hear your take on this. I'm wondering, I'm just curious, as Marcus and I were talking about the role of elders in the community and the opportunity for younger generations to engage uh, members of the of, of the older generation, how often do you get a chance to actually talk with younger folks and maybe getting into classrooms here locally? And and if you could give us a sense of how do they respond when they hear some of these stories that, that you actually tell about your own personal experiences in this process here in Asheville? It is amazing the calls that I receive from mainly white people. I do receive calls from Negroes from time to time, but mainly white people who have heard the word that I have some stories to tell. (laughs) And I'm busy every week engaging with many, many people in Asheville and Buffalo County. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. let me say, you know, doctors, there is so much uh, that has transpired. There is so much that I've been involved in. There's been so much that I brought forth before others to make it happen. And of course, there's also that period wherein I pull other people in to assist. For instance, the bowling center integration brought about what is called integration of Ashland Bunker County. Now, mm-hmm. I realized that we had a group of Stevens Lee School students who were a scorer, um, Mr. Rolling a rolling jewelry store. Mm-hmm. I trained these people in the evenings after school, and uh, they would go downtown and make incursions at the, at the five and ten cent stores, Eckerd's, and places like that. You know, the city, and like it's going on across the country. But what happened at the bowling center by Sam Irving being the uh, one of the officers of the chamber? I work for the chamber. I am a person who have always engaged white people. Never under any circumstances that I backed up when I had an idea in mind of something that would make a difference. So it came to them at the chamber what had happened at the bowling center. And really what happened, a group of chamber executives sat down with me one afternoon after I had returned from the Three Brothers restaurant across the street from the chamber building on Haywood Street this time bringing a sandwich to the executive director. And while we were talking, he took his sandwich out of the bag. The bag was lying there. And he said, Matthew, I understand that uh, you have done one hell of a job of the bowling center and that you've got Negroes and white people bowling out there. He said, what can the chamber do? 
And there's begin what I call they won't come. Mm-hmm. I took that paper bag, broke it open, got a pen, and I wrote on there, they won't come. So he wanted to know what did that mean. I'm, that meant that if you all listen to me, let's put together a program where the chamber can work towards change, where the chamber can work about work towards bringing about integration. Mm-hmm. Uh, that took us to um, city city council persons and um, uh, county commissioners coming together, and we all talked about it. Now, again, you got to realize a, ha- a part-time person, full-time at the Bowl Center, and that's the story itself. So, but anyways, mm-hmm. I'll get to that later. But the most important thing is the, the process was used at the chamber. The major hotels were called in first. The four major hotels were called in first. And they were asked whether they would be willing to allow Negroes to live in their hotels. Mm-hmm. Then they went to the few motels that have restaurants. And the, there was called dog and pony shows. Certain people were set up to uh, talk to a group of people, five or six people at a time. All of this information has been written up. I'm telling you all now. Uh, there are a couple of stories that have been written. Uh, Look Magazine, Post Magazine, Walkovia Magazine printed some of these stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, there's a documentary produced by ABC in 1970. It tells a little bit of what I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the documentary was shown nationwide. It's used once in a while, I understand now, as infill. I have finally got a copy of the uh, documentary. And uh, I've screened it about five times at folk request. Mm-hmm. So back to your question, uh, there are a lot of people who could benefit by the information mm-hmm. that have not received it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and Mr. Bacot, you know, I have to say, um, just this hearing you um, just share share the the historical knowledge that you have. Um, of, of black community of, of Asheville's um, historical, shall we say, progress or development, and hearing about your role, your active role in that process, um, I'm reminded of the the African griot tradition, right? So, so African griots were essentially historians and also storytellers um, who played a really integral role in in narrating, right, um, the story of of their people's past um, and of and of sharing knowledge about um, genealogies and all other and, and all and all and all sorts of of of, of knowledge that is connected to um, a people's identity. And so I'm 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 just I'm just amazed at your breadth of knowledge here. But I'm also curious to 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 know um, more about how younger folks, youth in particular, respond to the history that that you've been sharing with us today, and also um, particularly how they respond to your use of the term Negro. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that, that you know, you use or you suggested that you use this term Negro kind of um, um, intentionally. <laughs> and so if you could respond to those two questions, Mr. Bacot. Certainly I'll do that, but I will say this real fast. Uh, during the heyday of demonstrations to bring about change in our communities, I will say in the Asheville area, we could mark 1965, it was students uh, between the ages of seven and eight years old that demonstrated at the A&W restaurant on Merriman Avenue. Mm-hmm. In 1968, it was students from Mountain, Mountain Street School headed by 
uh, Catherine Cunningham, uh, and a number of other teachers that brought students downtown to Pritchard's Park and demonstrated from Pritchard's Park down to the March down the Wyoming Cultural Center. They were not adults. It was 1960, 61, when um, the president of the NAACP went to went when Dixie located on the Culver College in Valley Street, asked them to hire Negroes. They would not do so. So they set up a boycott. Ms. Virginia Kirkland was put in charge of uh, pulling together volunteers to boycott the Winn-Dixie of all the churches. This initiative took place. It only lasted one week and two days to get, uh, get enough adult Negroes to boycott Winn-Dixie. And on Wednesday of the second week, Mr. McCoy was taking all the signs, walking around Winn-Dixie by itself. Move, moving forward, this is Ashland, North Carolina. And we talk about adults. Now, moving forward, and we talk about youth. Um, every time that I engage with youthful people, they are highly engaged themselves, asking questions. And they also, I'm surprised that today uh, we find you who willing to sit down long enough to listen to these kind of stories that I have to tell. Mm. Uh, now, let's talk about the Negro. The Negro is this. Uh, I was born at a time when Negroes referred to as colored. They referred to as Negro. And this was back in the 30s, in the 40s. And as we moved along down through the years, uh, we moved into the 50s, uh, then Negroes somehow the other, that's what everybody was called at that time, and I'm going to do this while I'm talking to you. Uh, and if you see this, it says um, Negro protest. You see, can you can you all see that? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not where I got the Negro from, but I'm telling you, that's the term that was used in the actual mm -hmm. sense of the time. Um, uh, 1958, uh, 50, 59 in that area, we were still saying. And Negro, there was another name that they used as well. Then uh, Black came out in 1960 and at the same time Af Afro-American. So across the country, we were experimenting with these different names to address Negroes. Then we come to 1968, uh, there was something came up about, um, uh, no, no, 1971, I'm sorry. 1971, they dropped the Afro-American and said, okay, we want to be black. 1971, when James Brown came out with, I'm black and I'm proud, black resonated. We moved to 19, uh, 1989, Rainbow Coalition, Jesse Jackson uh, Convention. My first recollection was watching the convention and he at that convention said, that we don't want to be called black anymore. We want to be African-American. <laughs> uh, it did not go anywhere. 1990, 1993, Rainbow Coalition again. Jesse Jackson proposed to the convention that we be African-American and not black. So if you recall, there was a time when the government was trying to decide how to denote us on government forms. And I don't know if you all remember was the point there where they left it blank. Now I understand it's got black and African-American on it. Mm -hmm. So we moved down through the years 
And what we have adopted is black and African-American. And what I say, I see so many people. I see so many people who are in the business of uh, informing folks. And in the same sense, they're using African-American and they're using black. Mm-hmm. African-American. They talk about it, well, African-American, then black. And uh, I have never felt comfortable with it. I have always felt comfortable with Negro. I feel that African-American, Black, we need to make up our minds because when I make presentations to large groups of white folk, I've asked this question. What does it do to you when you're going to make a statement and you've got to sit and think whether to address a person politically correct as African-American or Black? And many of them say that they do think, well, as a matter of fact, 90% of people say, I do think about it. Mm-hmm. I say that's positive energy being used negatively. We need to have it wherein uh, we not have to have so many different names to identify one person. Right. Well, Mr. Bacot, it, it brings to mind, um, you know, kind of the way that Marcus and I kind of started the show out. And on the whole issue of self-definition, because Marcus and I, we, we, you know, brother, we were talking about this whole idea of the American dream. And as we can hear, we can hear from from Mr. Bacot's kind of recounting of, of his experiences in this story that there have been people who've had to fight for access to to that dream. Um, we haven't talked so much about how Mr. Bacot may define it, but I think that you get a sense of that in listening to uh, what he has to say. And Mr. Bacot, I would say as well that this whole issue of what people uh, decide to call themselves is a is is an effort at self-definition, which in some ways African-Americans have been denied in this country mm-hmm. for so long. You and I have taught Mr. Bacot about the uh, the use of this term, uh, Negro, because it has been a, a part of a larger national debate, because I remember the one of the last um I think uh, it wasn't the last interview that he gave, but I think he did reference this in his last interview when he retired from the Supreme Court. But uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall talked about this issue of how we classify and the terms that we use for different groups of people. And I can't remember the year, but I think it may have been in the 1980s when or it may have been in the 1970s. My mind is not as good as yours, Mr. Coat, on on these years. Marcus, I'm sitting here one as I was listening to him recount this and the dates and everything. I'm going, you know, he would pass he would pass a, a, one of these history tests that requires you to use dates, you know, with flying colors. I'm not even that good. And I've been trained as a professional historian. <laughs> So I find that amazing. But I think about uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the first uh, in one of his decisions from the court to use the term Afro-American. Um, and that um, and, and when he retired, I believe he in his last interview uh, when he left the court, that was referenced. And it was the term that he decided that he used all the time um, was Afro-American. That was even in the context of this whole conversation around uh, the Rainbow um, Coalition's effort to kind of reimagine this as African-American. So I think that this whole conversation behind that is um, is instructive. It, you know, we've just got a few minutes left here, um, and uh, before we before we end here, but Mr. Bacot, I would like to talk to you, just to get you to respond very briefly here to to this idea of the American dream. You've done a lot mm-hmm. to to kind of uh, to work towards access of the American dream. How how do you define that, the American dream? 
Uh, the American dream to me is having the opportunity to access a decent job, health care, good nutrition, so that you can be healthy and alert enough to uh, academically become involved. And then once your mind and body is prepared, you are set now to move forward into the larger world uh, wherein we have been denied so often when it comes to employment, uh, when it comes to business opportunities. Uh, if we don't have these good basic tenets within ourselves, it's going to be very difficult to access, access that that is so vital to our future, our present and our future and our children's future. The other thing, believe, number one, believe in yourself. Don't ever feel that there's anything you can't do. And that's a, one of the things that have driven me. There is nothing that I think that happens or I need to do that I think can't do. Yes, have I used, have I incorporated other people? Yes, I did. I said real fast. The Committee for Progress that I started in 1967 included 10 Negro men because women weren't involved that much. And one of those 10 Negro men was Mr. Isaiah Rice, your grandfather, Darren, mm -hmm. whom I chose to become a part of the Committee for Progress. The Committee for Progress became a, the committee that was enshrined by the chamber, the city, and the county. And this committee was responsible for moving forward many of the integration initiatives that transpired from that point forward. The committee was responsible for it. So I know I've got a little bit offline from what uh, yeah. you asked me. But I have to get that in. All right. Yeah. And Mr. Bacote, you know, as, as Darren mentioned, you know, we're, we're running down on time. And, you know, I think we could just probably continue this conversation <laughs> at him tonight. But, um, right. but, 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 but we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to briefly, if you would, just share your, your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which okay. is you know, Black so Lives much. Matter? Yes. Uh, uh -huh. I'll have to give it to you like this real fast. I recall in 2014, when Black Lives Matter raised its head by uh, three young ladies in Baltimore, Maryland, the Freddie, uh, Freddie Graves situation that happened with a gentleman was killed in the back of a uh, police van. Uh, it was my understanding that Black Lives Matter was supposed to be an activist type of organization that worked toward peacefully, worked towards bringing about change in the varied locales. Mm. However, what has seemingly transpired since then is that something else has been added to the Black Lives Matter movement, and it has become now peaceful and non-peaceful. And where we are today, uh, I think the Negro needs to be very careful about how we buy into Black Lives Matter, because mm -hmm. I don't think we want to be a part of destruction. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is construct and you certainly can't do that if your mind is labeled now over there with destruction. And where you destruct, most of the time, it's going to affect you more than anybody else in the later day. Because out of all of the cities where we've had these demonstrations to destruct and destroy things, the <laughs> years later, the communities are left wanting because they do not restore those to any type of benefit for human consumption.
All right. So Black Lives Matter, please, Mr. and Mrs. Negro, be careful how we well, buy into it. Well, Mar Marcus, I tell you, you know, it, I think uh, that that's a good way to end the, that conversation. And, you know, Mr. Picote, we, we want to thank you for just coming in here and joining so us much. today. Um, and these are really rich stories. I mean, I, I you know, Marcus, I kind of look at what we've done here as almost the oral history, um, yeah, which, you know, uh, the, I'm glad that it's recorded because it's something that people can listen to. But I'm also hearing, you know, Marcus, from this conversation with Mr. Picote, you know, the important role that education plays in in moving people forward um that at you know access to an education i, th I think we specifically heard him say um is a part of uh, of what he sees as uh at being at the heart of the american dream or the, mm -hmm. the pursuit of that we know the history with african americans in education we you know we there's something we can go into but i also hear you know the education should really create critical thought Mm -hmm. critical engagement of all types of different movements and social yeah. movements. So I think that he's kind of opened the door for you and I to go back in at some point. We'll have to talk more deeply about uh, some of these social movements. Yeah, absolutely. And and this whole point that that critical education that you just referenced needs to be brought to bear heavily on movements like Black Lives Matter so that mm -hmm. they um, avoid the trap of becoming destructive rather than constructive. Mm -hmm. So I tell you, this has been a wonderful show. Um, just, you know, just to hear Mr. Code again, recount these stories, giving us a sense of how Asheville has changed over time. We didn't get a chance to talk about the more national story, but it, in some ways, Marcus, he weaved that in. And I, again, I'm just absolutely amazed that, you know, he can give the date of when uh, James Brown's uh, <laughs> song, I'm Black and I'm Proud, I'm Proud came out, you know, and the influence that that had on people's thinking at that time. So once again, we want to thank Mr. Picote for being here. And as always, Marcus and I like to remind you again that the Waters and Harvey show is produced at Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, although Marcus, we're coming from our, our living room. That's true. Our office. <laughs> That's true. Yes. And, and, and you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR mobile app, iTunes, and Google Play. Right. You can always follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, as many of you have been doing. And Marcus and I, I think we're, we're slowly making our way through responding to some of the um, some of the comments and questions that have come in. So keep them coming and we will get to them as soon as we possibly can. But again, this has been a wonderful conversation. Brother, I think thanks for taking the time to do this conversation. You, Mr. Picote. Yeah, all Mr. Right. Picote, thank you for being here with us. And Marcus and I will we'll look forward to seeing you all next time. All right. Take care.